Hey, hey, everybody. If you're listening to this, you are listening to the first free hour of this episode of The Shift with Doug McKinty. If you like what you're hearing, please consider subscribing to the show in order to access the full feature-length versions of the podcast, as well as have access to the members' forum, where we discuss potential topics and interviews and dive deep into the overall concept of The Shift. For only six bucks a month, not only do you get the full-length episodes, but also an opportunity to co-create with me, your host, Doug McKinty, the future of the show. Go to www.theshiftnow.com or patreon.com backslash the shift and sign up today in order to help make the shift possible. Thanks for listening and enjoy the show. Good morning, noon, or night, wherever and whenever you are listening, you are listening to The Shift. I'm your host. My name is Doug McKenty. This interview was recorded on February 12th, 2022. Today on the program, I'm happy to announce my guest is New York University professor Dr. Mark Crispin Miller. He was a proud member of the Eastern Liberal Academic Establishment until the election of 2004 opened his eyes to the probability that something was very wrong with the dominant media and political establishments driving the narratives that become the talking points of the day. After noticing multiple irregularities in that election, Dr. Miller began a comprehensive analysis of the many indications that the Republican Party engaged in vote rigging that may have altered the results in favor of then-President George W. Bush. After the publication of his book, Fooled Again, The Real Case for Election Reform, he fully believed an election integrity movement would form around the expose that advocated for a full investigation into election protocols while making the necessary improvements required to provide a fully free and fair election process. Surprisingly, rather than garnishing praise for his efforts, the book was met with a near-complete media blackout and accusations of conspiracy theory became commonplace. This began a now decades-long investigation into the mechanizations of a corporate media he now concludes is more responsible for the dissemination of sophisticated propaganda in favor of a wealthy few, rather than engaging in true investigative journalism concerned with the production of narratives representing authentic truths. Over the years, this position has placed Miller at odds with the traditionally liberal academic establishment he was once a part of. The antagonism culminated with the introduction of COVID pandemic mandates and lockdowns when he used his position as a professor of media, culture, and communication to invite students to compare popular media narratives with actual scientific studies in order to make their own assessment of the pandemic's danger and the efficacy of non-pharmaceutical interventions. Though one might expect the teaching of critical thinking skills to be held in high esteem at collegiate institutions, the response from other faculty and staff at the University of New York was anything but respectful and conciliatory. In fact, Dr. Miller has been thrust into the forefront of the fight for academic freedom in the United States today. This conversation will include not only Dr. Miller's own transformation from a darling of the academic left to a veritable pariah, but we'll also discuss the current defamation lawsuit he has been forced to engage in in order to protect his reputation from the typical slanderous accusations of conspiracy and hate speech endured for simply advocating open-mindedness and critical thinking skills among his students. Unfortunately, his experience is not unique at universities across the United States. This case represents a broader battle against oppressive forces that will directly affect the ability of academic professors to speak out against the dominant narrative for decades to come. 
Find out more about the work of Dr. Mark Crispin Miller by going to www.markcrispinmiller.com or check out his blog at News From Underground on Substack. As always, if you like what you're hearing, please like, subscribe, and share this content on your favorite social media platform. We rely on listeners like you for distribution of this alternative information. Go to www.theshiftnow.com for hours of free content, sign up for the newsletter, or subscribe for feature-length versions of the show. You can also find my written musings by looking up the Populous Papers blog also on Substack. Without further ado, I'd like to thank Dr. Mark Crispin Miller for agreeing to this interview, and thank you for helping to make the shift. Hey everybody and welcome to this 109th episode of The Shift. I'm your host Doug McKenty and I am so pleased to be joined today by Dr. Mark Crispin Miller. Dr. Miller is really on the front lines of the fight for academic freedom in this age of wokeness and disinformation and misinformation. He's been teaching, if you're not familiar, a uh, class concerning the media and propaganda at New York University for a long time. And he's actually been forced to be involved in a lawsuit because he's getting so much pushback from his academic colleagues. Um, So I'm really interested in hearing about his story today, what it's been like for him to stand up against these, really these forces of censorship and the forces of propaganda that he's been fighting against uh, so nobly for really the last 15 years or so. Uh, And I'll just uh, let him introduce himself and welcome him to the program. Hey, Dr. Miller, how are you doing today? Hey, Doug, how are you? Doing good. You want to just, um, why don't you just give people an overview? I've, uh, I've read your book, Fooled Again, which started in the, the 2004 election between Kerry and Bush. Many of us who were observing politics during that time seriously questioned that election. And I think, if I'm correct in this, that that was a kind of the awakening moment for you. You can describe this in your own words, but just in terms of how powerful the propaganda is, how the conversation was going about that election at the time, and then how your thought has evolved uh, since then uh, into the situation you find yourself in today. Uh, Okay, I appreciate the question. Um, What happened was uh, strange, or it felt strange to me. I mean, in retrospect, it seems uh, entirely predictable. Uh, I had been concerned about uh, the voting machines for a few years by the time the 2004 election rolled around. I mean, I, I, like many others, was convinced that the 2000 election had been stolen with the complicity of the Supreme Court. Uh, And that was not um, a forbidden subject. But uh, it was different with the next election, as I discovered. Uh, It seemed to me that the evidence right off the bat was overwhelming. Uh, uh, The evidence that there was something wrong with the outcome of the 2004 election. uh, Because by by the time that happened, uh, George W. Bush was exceedingly unpopular, uh, even with members of his own party. Dozens of newspapers that had endorsed him four years before uh, now took pains not to endorse him this time around, and some of them even endorsed Kerry. And then there was, you know, there was all kinds of other evidence that um, the official outcome of the election was uh, dubious, to say the least. So I, I, I threw myself into writing this book, or to be more precise, I wrote a cover story for Harper's Magazine on the vote in Ohio, which was the pivotal state that year. 
And then that led basic books to ask me to write um, a, a whole book on, on the election, which I did. And, and you were kind enough to hold it up. It's called Fooled Again. Uh, and I, I and the publisher were both very excited about this project. We both thought naively that with its abundant uh, documentation, uh, this book would kickstart a national discussion of the urgent need for um, radical reform of our voting system, which is the worst in the developed world. And that's not just my arbitrary judgment. That's the finding of Harvard and the University of Sydney, the researchers at both those institutions who collaborate on a, um, a periodic assessment of the world's voting systems. And the United States is dead last in these assessments, 26, 26th out of 26, for a number of reasons. Our, our voting system is, is unspeakable. So uh, here we were expecting that this book would uh, open people's eyes and introduce the subject uh, into the you know media discourse, et cetera. But it didn't happen. Uh, the book was almost entirely blacked out <clears throat> by the corporate media. Uh, we got a total of two newspaper reviews in the whole country, and neither of them was a major daily. And one of them was a, a hit piece. I couldn't get on NPR. And, and people have to understand that back then, I mean, I'm a controversial figure now. I, and this started, you know, with that book, you know, my, my, my new reputation or my current reputation. But at the time, I was deemed an edgy but acceptable media critic. I had four or five op-eds in the Times. I was often on NPR, you know, uh, talking about this and that. Uh, but this time was different. Um, as I say, the corporate media blacked the book out. And even more strikingly, the left press attacked the book. Mm -hmm. And I, I, I put that in, in, you know, verbal italics because I myself had been writing for the left press for years, you know, for the nation, Mother Jones, et cetera. Yeah. And, and the, these were the outlets. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I was just not to interrupt, but the book itself is clearly, I mean, you're discussing how the Republicans stole the election. So you were clearly coming from a more progressive or left-wing perspective at that time. Exactly. Exactly. That was the first indication I had that something was really wrong with the left. Mm -hmm. Although I didn't put it, quite that way to myself but um that's that's what i discovered uh and it's only you know worsened since then that we can get to that i'm sure at any rate um uh, the book was attacked by people some of them my friends um and i was specifically attacked as a conspiracy theorist and and this is what um initiated a kind of a deeper study of the media than i had undertaken for many years, uh, a conspiracy theorist. And the book was deemed conspiracy theory. And I was really gobsmacked by this. I didn't understand why I was being called a conspiracy theorist. And then I, when I got a grip, I, I, I asked myself, you know, what, when did that become a thing? What is that? 
uh, when did journalists start reflexively calling people conspiracy theorists for voicing perfectly rational and defensible suspicions? So I, I, it took about a half an hour to go to the websites of the Times and the Washington Post and Time Magazine and do a search on those phrases. And from that little bit of research, I discovered that prior to 1967, conspiracy theory, that phrase, uh, came up now and then in, in journalism and in no consistent way. Conspiracy theorists never came up. Nobody was ever called that. Uh, and then I did a bit more research and discovered from that that the reason why it started to uh, spike in 1967, the usage of those two uh, epithets, uh, is that the CIA that year, early that year, sent a memo to its station chiefs worldwide. It's memo 135960 which uh, was drafted in response to a, a problem, as they put it in the first sentence, that they were having with the Warren Report narrative. Because 67 was a year that um, a number of um, investigators like Mark Lane and Sylvia Mayer and others were publishing books uh, questioning the Warren Report um, in a pretty devastating way. So the CIA's response to this was to urge its station chiefs worldwide to use their <clears throat> media assets and political connections to pump out uh, write, writings uh, discrediting the work of the conspiracy theorists. And the memo uses that, that epithet. Uh, and and, and it, it proposed a number of we would call them talking points um, for these media assets to use in their attacks. It, 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 they could associate this kind of um, revisionism with uh, communist propaganda. They could make the argument, and it's one we still hear today, that, well, a conspiracy on such a scale uh, would have um, broken by now because someone would have talked. And of course, the news uh, media being so keen on any kind of explosive revelation would jump on it. You know, that's an argument, as I say, we still hear, although it's, you know, uh, preposterous beyond words. So um, I discovered this. And then at the same time, a friend of mine, uh, Lance DeHaven Smith, a professor in Florida, who had uh, done some really excellent work on the 2000 election, in which case, uh, Florida was the pivotal state. Uh, and I saw he had written an essay on, on the history of the phrase conspiracy theory. He'd done the same research I had, and it was a fine essay. So uh, at the time, I was editing a book series for the University of Texas Press, and I invited him to write a book on the subject, and, mm -hmm. and he did. Yeah, and that's, that's one an always... excellent book, by the way. Yeah, thanks. It's, it's called Conspiracy Theory in America. I use it in my propaganda courses, or did when I was allowed to teach that course. Um, and it's still there uh, for the reading. I strongly recommend it, um, as, I, as I take it, you do. So that began my, um, I don't know, I call it a deeper study 
of uh, the media propaganda. I had all I had long um, taken the tack in discussing media and its corruption uh, of um, doing an economistic analysis, which is still essential. You still have to note, for example, that advertisers wield tremendous influence over media content, as do corporate owners. You can't talk intelligently about what it is we're watching and being bombarded by if, if we don't take account of those factors. And, and certainly the, the disgraceful performance of the media worldwide uh, since the rollout of the virus owes uh, everything, in a sense, to Big Pharma and to the Gates Foundation, you know, which has spent many, many millions of dollars on its strategic media partnerships, which are just bribes. They have given money to the Times and to the BBC and, you know, all, all, all the, uh, you know, usual suspects. But um, that kind of economistic analysis is necessary, but not sufficient to understand how and why the media is so um, utterly corrupt. As the um, media cartel has become ever more concentrated, and this is an issue that I was actually um, tracking with my hair on fire back in the 90s. Uh, you know, I started something called the Project on Media Ownership when I was teaching at Johns Hopkins. And its purpose was to try to, you know, dramatize for the public the serious risk posed by media concentration as, um, you know, a former plurality of voices and owners. Uh, inexorably gave way to a cartel, uh, you know, which say five multinational corporations control like 90% of the uh, content. Mm -hmm. uh, well, th the reason why that's not, that's not enough of an explanation is that as the media has become more concentrated and the media players fewer and larger, they have not only um, exerted even tighter control on all the news that's pumped out by all their different holdings, but they also have, have grown closer to the government, right? You take a look at Google, for example. Google has very close relations with the federal government uh, and has for a long time. Now, this is not new. You know, the CIA has been manipulating media content in the U.S. since the 50s, which is to say almost since they were formed in 1947. So government uh, distortion of, of the news is not new, but it becomes a more potent uh, and, and, and less resistible force the bigger these media outfits become so that the merger of state and corporate power is even more awesome than it was back in say the 50s or the 60s when it you know at least you had you know many more outlets employing many more people so that the likelihood of some honest reporting slipping through was greater because it's harder to control a multitude than it is a fairly small number of of um, employees mm -hmm. right 
And, you know, there were more independently owned outlets back then. There are really none now. Uh, now, let me add another uh, consideration here that, that um, whereas in former decades, there was a left media, you know, um, you know, some of them affiliated with communists, uh, others not. Now, what we call the left press is almost completely funded in one way or another by the state, you know, through the Open Society Institute or through the Rockefeller Foundation or through the Ford Foundation. So if you look at, at uh, the ownership of Democracy Now!, which means the ownership of Amy Goodman, the nation, uh, uh, fairness and accuracy in reporting. Here I'm talking about former friends of mine right. in every case. You know. uh, they're all funded by, by the state, right? Which, which makes clear, I think, to anyone with eyes wide open, anyone who's not in denial, that the state basically runs the left press just as I think the state runs the left, the so-called left. And I say this as, as you know, someone who had always identified as being on the left, that I came out of the campus left circa 1970, 69. You know, we were against the war in Vietnam. We were focused on civil rights, which to us meant integration and equality. Uh, we were ardently opposed to censorship you know we listened to lenny bruce and right you know, mort Saul and dick gregory and george carlin was just starting to perform back then right so what what's now the left is is unrecognizable to me and i'm not the only person who feels that way so um that was a very long-winded answer to your, uh, your opening <laughs> Well, there's so much going on here, uh, and I can't wait to get into the meat of it. Will, will you clarify a little bit about, um, because I think what we're seeing so much of these days is the the influence of these public-private partnerships. So the notion, I mean, you basically equated, for example, the Rockefeller Foundation or the Ford Foundation uh, with working with the state. And I and I think, I wish more people would would really understand this. I mean, I've actually, in my work, started calling it the the government corporate complex to be like, these things are, are completely enmeshed. And that includes these billionaire foundations, in my mind, and these public-private partnerships. And when we start to view the whole thing as the state, I think every all the pieces of the puzzle start to really fall together. But how did you, are you equating these foundations with actually like basically directly as state actors these days or, or just clarify okay. that point? They have been for a long time, actually, like the Ford Foundation was back in the 60s, uh, funding Afrocentrist activists, for example, in various city school systems and weaponized some of them against the Black Panthers. See, the Ford Foundation didn't do that on its own hook, right? I mean, when uh, it was McGeorge Bundy left, uh, you know, service to the executive branch in the 60s, he took over the Ford Foundation. And he'd been one of the Kennedy people who had actually been working against Kennedy's plan to pull out of Vietnam. Uh, you know, he was part of that whole WASP elite that was tightly connected to the CIA and so on. So, um, you know, when we discovered that the Ford Foundation gave, I think, $100 million to BLM, um, 
again, we have to put this in the context of how the CIA has operated. It uses pass-throughs, uh, which appear to be disinterested. Now, you know, there are many, many potential benefits to grasping this, this fact that those outfits are really working hand in glove with the agency and, you know, in different ways with the military, I suppose. One benefit is it makes necessarily clear to us that we are living under a form of fascism already in as much as fascism uh, is, as Mussolini put it, uh, I mean, he was quoting somebody else, but he adopted this definition as his own. He deemed it another uh, term for corporatism, which in his view, you know, represented a merger of state and corporate power. Okay. That's what we're dealing with now. I mean, we're hurtling into ever more flagrant, more naked fascism uh, daily. Um, but we've been living under objectively fascist conditions for a long time. And there was a book by Bertram Gross published in 1980 called Friendly Fascism, which is one of the many volumes that we brought back in the Forbidden Bookshelf series, which I edited for several years, uh, a great book. And, and he talked about what friendly fascism was. Now it's not so friendly. You know, you look at what's happening in, in uh, Canada, Austria, Australia, New Zealand, it's becoming ever more like the familiar article, you know, from the uh, early to mid 20th century in, in Germany and, and Italy, right? Um, now I lost the thread of what I was saying. Uh, uh, can you remind me where I was going? Just the connection between the way these foundations work and their connection right. with, with government. It. Thank okay. you. Yeah. So one benefit is that it gives us a clear view of, of, of what we're dealing with. And, and another is that as uh, people uh, mostly on the right come to recognize the state involvement in this whole process, they will be less inclined and some have become less inclined to the knee jerk denunciation of the left you know, uh, as if, you know, the camp is left to somehow taken over the Pentagon or taken over Verizon, which is now requiring its employees to study critical race theory, you know, um, or Congress, uh, we, you know, which passed this um, new rule that they can't use the words mother, father, sister, and brother. They have to use woke terminology. So everybody feels included. That's not something that was, I don't believe it was hatched wholesale by Herbert Marcuse, although he had, you know, was very influential in his way. Um, it gets tiresome to hear really intelligent people on the right or on the conservative side of things engage in a kind of updated version of red baiting propaganda. You know, what's happened is that the globalists have turned the left into its cat's paw. All right. They have weaponized the left. Um, it is mind-boggling to realize, it has boggled my mind to, to, to realize that just about every position favored by what we now call the left it 
benefits the globalist agenda in one way or another. And we could go through the list, you know, climate change. I mean, that's a globalist thing completely. Um, you know, there's tremendous corporate and plutocratic backing for a Green New Deal because this is um, this is what they want. They want to restrict our movements. They want to limit the number of miles we can drive. They want us to uh, have uh, you know carbon credits instead of cash, and they want to be able to control what we ingest, you know, and where we can go. They want absolute control. They want Chinese level control. Uh, and so they are pushing the whole climate change narrative, which I used to believe ardently, you know, for years, I was extremely concerned about this right. until I came to see that the main propaganda memes deployed to push this to the public were all bogus. I discovered this. I read the work of Corey Morningstar, you know, an excellent researcher who has dug up all this evidence, copious evidence. This whole thing has the blessings of the globalists. That's just one example, climate change. Um, you know, they're defund the police. Well, they don't want municipal police forces. Uh, they don't want police who grew up in the city or near the city that they serve. They don't want police unions. They don't want any of that. Look at the cops in Canada. You know, many of them are actually joining the protesters or standing down when asked to go after them. Well, wouldn't it be better to have globalist police forces and to use AI, robot dogs? I mean, this all sounds like Philip K. Dick, right? right. But defund the police, you know, coming out of the, the mouths of all these babes in, uh, uh, you know, uh, on campuses, for example. That's um, they're actually doing the work of the globalists. Mm -hmm. The same is true with Black Lives Matter. Uh, this is a divisive, essentially racist movement whose whole goal seems to be um, intensified or worsened division, you know, throughout the American population. It's a kind of neo-segregationist movement that, that, that can only harden the divide between you know, the races between red and blue and so on. Um, and, and we can go on from there, you know, trans right. rights. This is actually a step toward transhumanism. That helps explain why um, Warren Buffett and George Soros have generously funded the trans rights movement. You know, it's also misogynistic in its effects because it holds that biological males can compete against girls and women in girls and women's sports. It means that biological males can gain admittance to women's shelters, to women's prisons, and most um, frighteningly, uh, the trans rights movement tends to normalize radical medical intervention in the sexual development of children. And here we get to the crunch. This is part of the eugenics project that the globalists have been pushing actually for a, over a century, right? Which went underground after the footage of the death camps horrified the world and then reemerged in 1952 as a population control movement, right? Uh, the uh, glamorization of Greta Thunberg on the left, uh, the uh, cult of Extinction Rebellion on the left. This is a kind of um, 
environmentalism that actually ignores most of the serious threats to the environment. It ignores air pollution. It ignores water pollution. Uh, you know, it ignores uh, the runoff of, of chemical fertilizers. It ignores right. radiation. It ignores Fukushima, right? It ignores glyphosate. It ignores these really serious existential threats to the environment in favor of a fairly crackpot theory that the problem is CO2 and that we can somehow get down to net zero, you know, which is going to devastate economies. Uh, it's going to immiserate populations. Uh, they're not going to do anything to slow down the war machine. You can bet your boots, you know, uh, and that runs on oil and gas. But um, right. anyway, I, you know, this is kind of a scattered demonstration of the fact that the left now is no longer opposed to war, right? The left's version of, of uh, racial politics is to divide the races further. Um, and the left is all for censorship and, and even violence, even police violence. Just I think yesterday or today, Juliet Kayem, a Harvard professor and CNN uh, analyst, tweeted that they should um, slash the tires of the trucks in, in Canada, arrest the truckers and move the trucks. This woman was under secretary of DHS, Homeland Security under All Obama. Right. She doesn't have a, a very firm grasp of logistics since she suggests they slash the tires of trucks that they're then supposed to move, right? right? So it's, it's as idiotic as it is brutal. But, you know, this has happened in a very gradual and sort of imperceptible way that, that, that people on the left and left media and left campus activists have become so, so uh, vitriolic and hostile to those whom they have been persuaded are fascists. Yeah. Right? So it's it's very disorienting, uh, to say the least. Right. It's so fascinating, the state that we're in right now, where all these lines are are blurred. There's, um, you know, I think people have called it the post-truth world, because even having conversations about so many things, I mean, everybody just comes from a completely different angle. And having conversations becomes challenging to try to overcome these differences, probably by design, right? I mean, but... Um, I wanted to ask you, what are your feelings about the left-right paradigm in general these days? I mean, we've just had this conversation about the billionaire classes funding a lot of these progressive movements, and a lot of the left has really been co-opted by the, the capitalist class, uh, you know? So it's like, what's going on here? These people who believe that they're fighting the, the capitalists are literally working for the capitalists. And then maybe even, uh, what are then some of your criticisms of the right uh or is the left-right paradigm i mean i'm basically trying to figure out how to how to get a, away from it entirely i actually come uh at things from a, a libertarian perspective but i'm you know becoming more and more even left libertarian all the time i mean i'm, I'm very sympathetic to left-wing causes but you know without the coercion <laughs> and uh and like the violence that that as you described is becoming more and more popular with antifa and uh with people on the left really believing that this um 
this perspective that they hold that they're fighting fascism when a lot of times what I've perceived, especially in the Trump era, maybe people are freedom of speech activists and they're getting called fascists because maybe they also, you know, they'll allow some hate speech or something or or they get called racist uh, because they're not buying completely into white privilege, even though, you know, it's not like people are burning crosses on people's lawns or anything like that. It's like, um, again, just so divisive. So how are you fitting things in, you know, in terms of the right left paradigm and how it's functioning these days, or, or does it function at all? And do we need something else? Is there a different perspective, different way of viewing all of this? I, I take the point that's implicit in your question. And I think that we have to just junk it. It's yeah. <laughs> outlived its usefulness. We don't right. need it anymore. What is it ultimately based on the layout of the, the French assembly during the revolutionary years, right? Mm -hmm. Left and right. Who needs it? You know, we don't need it anymore. Um, the last thing we need is to square off against each other. The last thing we need. Yeah. That's the oldest trick in the imperial playbook is to get, you know, the, the occupied populations hating each other's guts. The Romans did it. The British did it. And now the globalists are doing it. And they've, they've really, you know, pushed it to a, a whole new level. You know, the, the year COVID was marked on the one hand by, you know, the, the virus panic that gripped everybody. Um, but even even in the in the in the in the midst of that, it, there was intense division. You may recall between maskers and anti-maskers. Right. This was all over the media, and uh, they kept highlighting stories of violence by anti-maskers. At least some of those stories were completely bogus. Possibly all of them were, but they never reported any of the violence inflicted on unmasked people right mm -hmm. so so there was division there that was the first phase of your covid phase two kicked off with the george floyd incident you know after which um blm rose to prominence on on a, on a tidal wave of cash right and that was um again extremely divisive uh the protests were invariably followed nationwide by uh, riots and arson and vandalism that the left, you know, denied, you know, they just said, this isn't happening. That's a lie. Even Noam Chomsky, or maybe especially Noam Chomsky, yeah. you know, if you want, if you want to point to somebody who really embodies this entire corruption of the left, I would point to him, you know, he's the most egregious the least forgivable. He has utterly disgraced his his name. It seems to me. At any rate, um, uh, the 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 BLM moment um, served on the one hand to further the economic devastation, you know, of independent businesses, mm -hmm. mostly in the black community. Um, it had already, you know, the independent economy was already reeling from the lockdowns, and then uh, BLM came along and dealt a further body blow to mostly black owned businesses and in so doing really heightened the division uh, of the general population. And, and the, you know, this has been uh, probably no more clearly uh, demonstrated than in the Kyle Rittenhouse verdict, you know, uh, that was one of many, there's a new phenomenon in, in propaganda, which is 
um, incidents that are demonstrably misrepresented by propaganda, demonstrably at the time the incident takes place. Let me explain. Throughout the history of modern propaganda, uh, things have happened or not happened without the public there to see them, or things have happened uh, so confusingly that even the public present to see them couldn't figure out what was going on. So, you know, we commonly date the history of modern propaganda from World War I, uh, you know, before which and during which the British and American people uh, heard all these atrocity stories about the Germans, the Hun, you know, horrible stories of impaling babies on bayonets and crucifying uh, prisoners of war and cutting the breasts off of nurses, all made up, but nobody was there to see whether it was true or not. Then you got like the Kennedy assassination. Um, the, the point is that you, you look at the Kennedy assassination, you look at the World War I propaganda, you look at the other major assassinations, you look at 9-11, you look at the Gulf of Tonkin. These are all things that, that were said to have happened. Uh, uh, and, and the audience for, that, for those claims has been an audience of people who could not see what actually did happen. They weren't there to see it. All right. I think starting with January 6th, we now have incidents that we can see with our own eyes are not what they're saying they are. Right. You know, you have to be a real imbecile or hysteric or both to believe that January 6th was an attempted coup. Right. How was it an attempted coup? How was it an insurrection? An insurrection is a violent attempt to take over a government. Is that what we saw in the Capitol? A bunch of guys yelling and putting their feet up on desks is a coup attempt. Noam Chomsky has said this repeatedly. It was a coup attempt, right? He compared it to the beer hall putsch of 1923, yeah. you know, Hitler's first attempt to take over Munich. I mean, what is he, high? <laughs> is it senility? I, I, those are not, you know, what we saw on January 6th at the time it was happening. It was not an attempted coup, you know? It was this oafish lark is what it was. But all these people on the left had already been hypnotized into listening to and believing what they were hearing about those images. Right. And not actually looking at the images, you know, not looking at them. Now, this had begun... Uh, this hypnosis had started before the 2016 election uh, when, when all of a sudden Trump was Hitler. You may remember this was late September of 2016. Mm -hmm. The Times published a book review by the veteran reviewer Michiko Kakatani, at least ostensibly by her. It was a review of a new, the first volume of a new biography of Hitler out of Germany. And the rhetorical trick of the review was to intimate from the beginning that it was actually about Trump, although it didn't mention his name. It was very cleverly done. But anyone reading it could get the message yeah. that we, we ignore this at our peril because they ignored Hitler. And look what happened there. And now look at Trump and look what might happen here. And this was in the Times, but the entire liberal media just went. Ape with 
joy over this review. They loved it. Right. Uh, it, it is a preposterous equation. I mean, I'm, I have no use for Trump, right? But I do know. I know something about him, and I know something about Hitler, and I regard that equation as absolutely ridiculous. But it worked on, you know, that plurality that was inclined to believe it. You know, and that led into RussiaGate, which was yeah. a hallucination as well, right? So now the big lies tend to come from the left. You know, and uh, it, the left is m- much more violent and and uh, intolerant of disagreement even than the right was at its worst. You know, and I wrote three books attacking Bush Cheney. Yeah. You know, I did a show Thankfully. off Broadway. I did a six week show in 2004 called Patriot Act, which was all about Bush and their agenda. And, um, you know. They had me on Fox TV to talk about the election. They let me come on. Bill O'Reilly, I mean, it's true, he kept interrupting me, but he still let me come on. Right. And other, other, you know, radio people on the right, radio and TV people on the right, let me come on, you know. And they didn't call me up and subject me to a pre-interview to make sure that what I said would fit their editorial parameters. But that's what the liberal outfits do. They'd never have people on to argue from the other side. Uh, it's as if they don't want any real people to be visible to contradict their sort of demonization of right. the other side, right? So, um, yeah. Have I answered your question? I think so. Yeah, I mean, it's just such a fascinating conversation, and we can go all over the place. Um, one of the things that, that that I think you've really personally experienced this on so many levels, but I actually... Uh, I actually voted for Kerry in 2004, which, like I said, I kind of come from this libertarian perspective. I almost always vote third party. I don't even, you know, really have I've never had a lot of faith in the system uh, and even in the voting system. And in 2004, I was so blown away by the garbage that was promoting the Iraq war at the time. It was so clearly over the top and you could see the propaganda that was at that time targeting and promoting the conservatives to back Bush and then going into uh, the Iraq situation. And then it's almost as if the entire propaganda machine has done this flip-flop with Trump to where now it's all this left-wing propaganda. I mean, it's just so interesting. I mean, clearly you were you were right to be fighting against the Bush-Cheney administration in 2004 because those guys were pushing the boundaries, like you said, with the Patriot Act and taking full advantage of 9-11 to create all these wars in the Middle East that were disastrous uh, and beginning the buildup or continuing the buildup, perpetuating the buildup of the surveillance state and the militarization of the police. And then all of a sudden it was like with Trump, the propaganda machine and, you know, it probably started before Trump and, the, you know, people have been complaining about the liberal media, quote unquote, for a while. But but certainly with Trump, all of a sudden it just like amplifies and you get all this messaging that Trump is Hitler. I, I live in a really progressive community here in Northern California and I've lost friends who I call it Trump derangement syndrome. I don't know if you've heard that term, but sure. where, you know, my my progressive friends just bought all of that hook, line, and sinker. And they started thinking that Republicans were complete fascists. There's not a lot of Republicans around here. The Republicans who do live around here are starting to feel afraid. I mean, they, you know, that they can't express their own political beliefs. If you're pro-Trump in this community, you know, you're going to get hammered. 
Uh, and then I also found it interesting, maybe you could uh, speak to this a little bit, is that that Trump derangement syndrome seemed to then just translate into the coronavirus propaganda, where all of my, my, you know, my progressive friends that are suspicious of big pharma, uh, are anti-GMO, you know, a lot of these left-wing uh, concepts that are anti-government, anti-corporate, but, you know, the media was sort of pushed this push this narrative, Trump versus Fauci, and, and the lockdowns weren't hard enough, and that's why we had such a problem, and it was all Trump's fault, and my progressive friends just instantly switched from, you know, like, hating Trump because of the, uh, because of the racism into just really believing that they had to mask up, and they had to be pro-lockdown, and they had to participate in all of the coronavirus stuff and, and really have Dr. Fauci's back because of the conflict they saw between Trump and Fauci. And I just, I don't know, there's something so interestingly manipulative about how I think all of these people kind of got herded with the Trump propaganda into the coronavirus propaganda. And it's, there's all, I feel like there's some kind of mechanism behind this that I can't quite put my finger on. Like, do they, do they really have this much control over the propaganda machine that they, you know, I mean, I, we know about things like the Tavistock Institute and that they're, they're doing a lot of research and how to manipulate the mass mind. But I, you know, I almost feel like it's so subtle sometimes and people who are hypnotized, as you say, by the dominant narrative, I mean, they just get like, pulled around by whatever, you know, whatever's on NPR. I do my 10, 20 minutes of NPR every morning just to kind of plug into to that narrative. And I'm, I'm amazed at, at what they say and what people then just like, they just go with it, you know? Um, so, yeah, I mean, I guess that was kind of a broad, broad spectrum, but if you can pick something in there that, that interested you, make a comment on, on how, you know, maybe the right left paradigm is used and how manipulative the propaganda can be. Yeah, well, great question. What what has happened in, in very general terms uh, is that what used to be <clears throat> um, <clears throat> cast in red baiting terms has been reversed. So you don't accuse people of being communists anymore. You remember I said earlier that that right. one of the talking points in the CIA memo was you associate conspiracy theory with communist right. right that's so right. fascinating actually to think about because now it's right-wing domestic terrorism right. yeah exactly it's right-wing <clears throat> it's not red baiting it's what you might call brown baiting hmm. you know as in brown shirts right so you're a fascist if you um, entertain conspiracy theories which means that you're a fascist if you question dominant narratives uh so there were a lot of um you know, liberals who uh, shy away from any counter narrative because they link it mentally and often unconsciously uh, with anti-Semitic conspiracy theories, yep. you know, that go way, way back. Uh, and I think that that's been manipulated by design. You know, I think the 9-11 truth movement was seeded with some people who uh, said things like the Jews were warned on 9-11, you know. Sure. Um, and that would understandably turn off a lot of liberal and progressive Jews, right? Uh, and and there's ways in which the Kennedy assassination was also manipulated really in the same way. I don't think it was an accident that the assassin of Lee Harvey Oswald was Jewish, right? This gets us into a very complex and subtle discussion right. of, of how the agency 
manipulated uh, those images in order to scare the left away. So they've had their eye on the left for a very long time. Now, now to answer your question more specifically than to make this general point that what used to be red baiting is now brown baiting, mm -hmm. uh, we have to get into the crucial role played, and I mean that literally role played by Donald Trump, you know, whose presidency was like nothing so much as a pro wrestling match. Uh, and so was his campaign, you know, in 2016, that Trump was the guy you boo, you know, Trump was the swaggering lout, right. who, uh, you know, uh, you know, hit his uh, adversary in the kidney with his elbow and the refs not looking, you know, the way he stood behind Hillary during the debate in this menacing way, you know, so he's the one that all the liberals and progressives screamed at, you know, uh, shrieked at. Uh, he's terrible. He's awful. He's this racist. And there was material for that view, you know, based on the rallies where Trump would, you know, single out a black guy protesting. And that stuff did happen. There's no doubt about that. But the fact is that Trump was never a fascist. He's not interested in fascism. He did nothing to turn the government into his own, um, you know, creature the way Hitler did very cleverly, you know, Trump's interested in himself, you know, he's a narcissistic blowhard, right. uh, but you got to hand it to him. He didn't start any new wars, you know, which I think is a good thing. Uh, I'm that old fashioned. I think that's a good thing, right. but I, I do believe and that this gets us, I think, down to the heart of the matter that Trump was placed in office precisely to be at the podium during the COVID crisis, okay? First of all, I don't actually believe that Trump really won the 2000 election, and I don't think he thought he actually won it. In the 2016, uh, yeah. 2016, I have yeah. the same. I have the same suspicions about that election. I was so blown away when he won, and I've been, I think, probably like you, since 2000, these voting machines... Until people look into the voting machines, as far as I'm concerned, there's no way we can tell who wins any of these elections. So you're absolutely right. You're absolutely yeah. right. Well, there were three, the three swing states, I think it was Wisconsin, Michigan, and Pennsylvania. And then there were some other states as well, where the results were just hinky in exactly the same way they were hinky in 2000 and 2004. Mm -hmm. You know, the late night reconfiguration of, of the numbers, uh, you know, sudden, suddenly benefiting one other candidate. That's what happened in 2016. Uh, Jonathan Simon, uh, whose work I have long admired uh, in the election integrity movement, wrote a very good essay on the numbers suggesting that Trump didn't really win. And, and there's a kind of anecdotal uh, um, support for this claim in the fact that I got this from Anthony Scaramucci, whom you may remember was Trump's press secretary for about 20 minutes. He said that um, they didn't have an acceptance speech written. See, so Trump went home early. I think he wanted to go to bed, get up early and start a TV network, you know, because yeah, that's yeah. what he's interested in. Right? Just like Bush wanted to be baseball commissioner. I think Trump wanted to run a network, you know, uh, and then surprise, surprise, he won. Right. Now, the right interprets this as, oh, despite the best efforts of the deep state, you know, Trump won anyway. I, I think that's romantic. So you are listening to this. You are listening to the first free hour of The Shift with Doug McKinty. 
For access to the full feature-length versions of the podcast, go to www.theshiftnow.com and subscribe for the audio version for just $6 a month. Access the full-length episodes in video form through rockfin.com by subscribing at the Shift with Doug McKinty landing page. For $9.99 a month, you gain access not only to the Shift, but also all other premium content material hosted on the platform. Find out more at www.theshiftnow.com backslash store. Detoxify your body, decolonize your mind, make the shift. I'm kind of open-ended. We don't have to hard stop in 10 minutes, but I don't want to keep you too long. And, I, and I'd be remiss to, uh, to not bring up your whole struggles with academia, because one would think and hope that in the academic world, there's this you know, thing called academic freedom and people are allowed to express themselves. And once you're granted tenure in a university, theoretically, you know, you're supposed to be able to speak your mind. And certainly from my perspective, I mean, you're really onto something. It's amazing uh, that this, the fact that you've chosen to teach this propaganda class in, uh, at the university level in order to educate your students as to how to be really critical of the news that they ingest has just gotten you so hammered uh, by the institution that you're working at, by the other uh, academics that you've been working with. So, you know, let's just dive into that for for the last portion of the interview here, just because this is, to my mind, I mean, the rest of it is so fascinating. It's so dangerous that the the fact that so many people are hypnotized by by the propaganda machine in general, but to see it infiltrate its way into the universities so powerfully so that now so many students really are getting indoctrinated into this left-wing perspective that has been so influenced by the propaganda that they're they're pushing people like you aware of of what's really happening you know out of this out of the system you know doing everything they can to try to silence a voice like yours well, they certainly wanted to do that. I'll tell the story. And I also have a piece of news that um, you'll be the first to hear. Right. Uh, all right. Um, I'll, I'll try to be succinct. In September of 2020, uh, I was teaching, uh, starting my propaganda course as usual, except for the fact that we were doing it on Zoom. Right. So I began, as I always do, by making some very basic points about the study of propaganda that uh, you know, propaganda works best when you don't see it for what it is, you know, when it comes disguised as news or as entertainment, and that um, the study of propaganda, as I said earlier, requires that one be prepared to move out of one's comfort zone because one will often discover that um, something that one has believed fervently for a long time is actually untrue or maybe half true. I also said that uh, it's all too common for professors who teach propaganda courses to overfocus on the Bolshevik and Nazi uh, forays into the practice, which is uh, a way of of, uh, tacitly claiming that it's not it's not American. It's it's alien to us. It's not something we do. It's something they do. Right. Whereas, in fact, modern propaganda, whether it's political or commercial, is actually an Anglo-American invention. And the Nazis, in particular, actually emulated the British uh, World War One propaganda, 
in, in many ways. Uh, the Bolsheviks were a, a little bit more um, sort of eccentric in the way they, they did it. But the fact is that at its most, at its subtlest and most compelling and most successful, it is an Anglo-American thing, mm-hmm. right? So uh, I made the point that while we would be looking at those chapters in the history of propaganda, our main focus would be on propaganda in real time. And we would attempt uh, either both as a class discussing propaganda and um, as, as individual students writing papers, we would attempt to grapple with propaganda now. And, and I made uh, you know very clear how challenging that is, how socially and psychologically challenging it can be to do that. Then I moved on to an example of the kind of thing we might do in the course. And this is where I I, uh, stepped in it without intending to. Uh, I said, now look at the way we're meeting this course, this class. Uh, You hate it. I hate it. We don't like it. Why are we doing it? We're doing it, obviously, because of the COVID crisis. The COVID crisis is something we could actually study in this course because it's been driven by a number of propaganda themes, which doesn't necessarily mean they're false because propaganda need not be false. It can be true, right? But at at best, it is one-sided. So we could talk about aspects of this crisis in this course. For instance, we could talk about the mask mandates. If you were to study the mask mandates as propaganda, you would want to start by reading all the randomized controlled trials of masking in healthcare settings. I thought there were eight. There were actually 10 at the time. Hmm. Now there's scores of them, but back then it was eight. And I said, all the randomized controlled trials of masking have found that they do not prevent transmission of respiratory viruses. You would want to read those studies. And you would also want to read the more recent studies that have claimed to find otherwise and make up your own mind, because that's the whole purpose of this course. (laughs) I gave them some tips on how a non-scientist can start to assess a scientific paper. And that, again, was a suggestion. It wasn't an assignment. All right. Uh, To make a long story short, this so offended one of the students in the class that she went on Twitter a few days later and demanded that NYU fire me. Hmm. All right? This was a little startling to me. It's never happened. But it was in itself not that big a deal. What was a big deal was that NYU essentially took her side. My department chair wrote a tweet thanking her and saying to her, we as a department have made this a priority and are discussing next steps. That's a, that's a verbatim quote. So here's this student intemperately demanding I be terminated for recommending that the class read some scientific studies. And my department chair assures her in the name of the department that they're going to act on this. And I hadn't been consulted by anybody. So this blew my mind. Right. The next day, the dean of the school I teach in, the Steinhardt School, and the doctor who determines COVID policy, which is draconian at NYU, wrote my other students an email without putting me on copy, 
uh, intimating that I had given the class dangerous misinformation and including links to the recent studies that I had told them to read, but essentially telling them that those are the ones they should believe. So it was the opposite of the way I teach. That was a, a really grotesque um, infringement on my academic freedom and interference in my teaching. Right. And then the third thing that happened was that I was asked, which is to say told, not to teach the propaganda course the following semester. Uh, and they gave me a bogus reason having to do with enrollments. But it was clearly uh, the whole purpose of this attack on me was to shut that down, you know, for reasons we can probably discuss. All right, <clears throat> so that all happened. Um, I put up a petition at change.org that people can still sign. Uh, the response was very gratifying. You know, thousands of people signing all over the world and some very eminent people signed. And that petition, which merely asked NYU to respect my academic freedom and did so in the name of all professors and doctors and scientists and whistleblowers and activists and others who've been gagged or punished for their dissidents forever. This enraged my department colleagues who interpreted this petition as an attack on the department, though it didn't mention the department. <clears throat> and um, thus um, infuriated, they wrote a letter to the dean demanding an expedited review of my conduct, making the claim that while they believe in academic freedom, now I've learned now when somebody opens by saying that, you got to be very wary, you know? Right. Yeah. Because there's always a but coming, but, but not for you, you know? Yeah, yeah. So they said, um, we believe in academic freedom, but according to the faculty handbook, if a colleague's behavior is sufficiently egregious, it will nullify his academic freedom. Uh, so that was the case with me, and that they wanted to see that I was appropriately punished uh, for my sins. And then they went through my sins. They started out by saying that I had told my students not to wear masks despite a New York state law. There's no such law, and I never said any such thing. But that was only the beginning of, a, of an indictment that included hate speech, attacks on students and others in our community assailing my classes with non-evidence-based theories, which is a euphemism for conspiracy theories. Mm, of course. And aggressions and microaggressions. So they hit me with the social justice playbook. They hit me with the COVID playbook. I was putting students at risk. And they accused me of conspiracy theory. Right. So, you know, I, I hit the censorship trifecta. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I've never heard of a case like mine. I've heard of a lot of professors you know, been canceled for woke reasons, but they, you know, they had more cudgels than that to hit me with. So I was completely outraged by this. I couldn't believe my eyes. I saw this letter when the dean sent it to me to inform me he had ordered the review without even talking to me. I demanded to, well, I implored him to meet with me, which he did by Zoom. And he told me, uh, maybe too frankly, that he went ahead and ordered the review, even though he hadn't consulted me yet, uh, because NYU's lawyers had told him he must, which I think is an interesting clue. Yeah. 
And I said, well, I just want you to know that this is, you know, I object to this. Uh, I asked him about the review. He said it would end in December of 2020, that it would be based on talking to students. I said, well, then I'm going to go ahead and ask former students to write emails on my behalf. And he said, okay. Now that proceeded, right? That started to move or so it seemed. Meanwhile, I, I went through the, the letter from my colleagues and I meticulously re refuted it. I wrote a rebuttal and I asked them in civil tones to retract it and apologize. And they ignored me. I sent it a week later with the same request. They ignored me. So I decided I had no choice but to sue them for libel. Okay, so I filed suit against them for libel. And this has to do with the news I have for you. Okay, so December came and went. I didn't hear anything from NYU. The following semester, the spring of 2021, my health completely collapsed. Uh, I've been suffering, as you know, from Lyme disease for over 10 years. And the stress of this whole thing put me in the hospital. So I was on medical leave in the spring. I didn't hear anything from them while I was recovering. Then in the fall of uh, 2021, fall semester, I didn't hear anything until early December when I was summoned to the Dean's office, brought my mask with me. And he told me there that um, they had found, I, I don't really know if they actually had a review, Doug, because I never met anybody who'd heard from them. Whereas uh, over 50 former and current students wrote on my behalf, okay? Mm. None of them said, oh, the dean's office called me. So whether there was a review or not, he told me that it had found that I did not violate any NYU policies and that they were letting the matter drop. All right, that was good news, albeit belated. Um, meanwhile, I, okay, the lawsuit. My colleagues uh, got themselves a lawyer and filed a motion to dismiss. And they filed that in um, late January, I believe, of 2021. And all this time throughout the rest of the year, the judge did not rule on their motion to dismiss. And the motion to dismiss, by the way, all the documents in this case, which would make you know, the basis of a great academic comedy slash horror story, you know, right. like a movie or a play. All the documents are on my website at markcrispinmiller.com. My colleagues argued in their motion that they did not libel me because everything they said was true. Their evidence to back that outrageous claim was mostly comprised of their own prior email exchanges about me which made very clear how long they had hated me and had been exchanging malicious gossip about me. I had no idea you know, right. that this was going on. But they regard their own prior hysterical gossip about what they had heard I was saying in class. They regard that as evidence of something. The fact is they lied about me and they continued to lie about me. And in the motion to dismiss, they even threw in another ac ac accusation saying I had hurled racial epithets at minority students which is another psychotic lie, right? So um, that was one claim they made. There were three. The second was that they were not the first to make this public. I was, 
but my chair had tweeted his support for the student who wanted me fired. So actually they started it. And they claimed most disingenuously that they did not want me to be fired, you know, which is laughable on his face. All right. So the what I'm trying to say is the motion to dismiss is very weak. Mm-hmm. The judge is taking forever to decide on it. And the news is that he did rule a couple of weeks ago and he he granted their motion. Mm. He did not grant their request that I be saddled with their legal fees, you know, and for that, I'm grateful. Yeah. But it doesn't matter to me. I expected this to happen. My lawyer, very tough lawyer who has uh, defended children's health defense and is a real keen believer in free speech, was kind of shocked at the shallowness of the judge's analysis. I, on the other hand, thought, and he agreed with this, that the judge was looking for a reason to get rid of this case, right? I mean, whether he's in communication with NYU, I don't know. NYU has a great deal of influence on the bench in New York, you know, because they got this very powerful law school. Mm. Um, whatever, I'm, I'm not surprised. I, I set up a GoFundMe account to raise money for my case. And um, I, I've raised more than enough to, to proceed with this case. And um, we're going to appeal. Uh, this is just insane. Right. Uh, yeah, I'm not going to drop this. This has got to stop because, as you noted, this is happening all over the place, everywhere. Yeah. You know, as um, the professoriate turns out to be about as tolerant as um, you know its counterpart in the Third Reich would have been. Right. Right. So we're going to just keep going. And I want to add <clears throat> that I have raised so much that I'm pleased to say I've been able to grant some of it to my lawyer's bigger case against the CIA for uh, illegal surveillance of people visiting Julian Assange in the Ecuadorian embassy. Wow. They would, they would have their laptops and cell phones and they actually hoovered up all their data. You know, this has nothing to do with national security. Right. So there's that case, and I am actually proud to urge people, you know, if they can swallow their distrust of GoFundMe since what happened in Canada. Sure. Uh, any any further funds that come to my GoFundMe page, uh, I will, you know, readily donate to that cause uh, so that they can, you know, uh, uh, bring the CIA to justice for what it did, uh, you know, in Julian Assange's situation. Um, but that's the news. Uh, the judge did the wrong thing, uh, not to my surprise, but um, right. we, we will continue fighting. It's amazing to me, and to continue with the psychological metaphor, which this this all this propaganda is so psychological, and then it becomes, I've had, I mean, I had this experience at my local radio station when I was doing shows there, because I, like you, you know, I start trying to talk about some different topics. And then, uh, you know, the the NPR supporters uh, turns into a big hullabaloo. And I find that there's all these passive aggressive jabs. The, 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 as we were speaking um, a little bit earlier, I was you said something about how the propaganda or the gaslighting of the propaganda is symptomatic, and it's a symptom of a larger cultural phenomenon. 
And then now those who are so heavily influenced by the propaganda respond in these passive aggressive controlling with these behavioral coping mechanisms, essentially. Mm -hmm. They're so convinced, I think, of the truth. And this is, I mean, it's just becoming so ubiquitous in the culture and it's becoming a culture-wide neuroses in a sense. And I think a lot of us who think differently, who think outside of the propaganda box, have to deal with, you know, in our families and our workplaces, um, just in our everyday lives with our friends and family, because uh, it's it we end up with such a different perspective on reality than those who are really listening to this mainstream narrative all the time. And it's become very challenging. It's difficult to overcome it. Maybe we can wrap it up here with just um, answering this question or discussing solutions, because it seems to me like what a university ought to be doing and what you were trying to do in your course is teach critical thinking. Critical thinking skills are the way to see through the propaganda. If you really know how to analyze, know how to do your own research, and we've seen, heard propaganda telling people not to do their own research or only listen to the experts because you can't understand the scientific paper, you, you know, <laughs> trying to trying to convince people that they're not capable of using their own critical thinking skills to educate themselves about a topic and make their own choices, right? Um, so, you know, I guess if you can just kind of um, make a, an overall concluding statement about, about this, this fact, about how we can uh, improve our ability to really learn how to think critically, have an open mind, uh, because it does require the ability to be able to, to be flexible, to change your mind and, and use our critical thinking skills to figure out how to get through this. Yeah, yeah. That's a good question. And it's a good place for us to conclude, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, you know, the fact is that my colleagues, and, and I, I take them as representative of the professoriate overall, I don't mean to single them out. They know absolutely nothing, zero, about the history of propaganda, or more specifically, and even more importantly, the history of its use by the CIA and FBI and military, you know, and other very powerful state agencies. They know nothing about that, right? They still harbor all the same, you know, um, wrong assumptions about things like the Kennedy assassination that the media continues to promote. Yeah. And this has to do with the way in which um, professional schooling uh, and education generally have tended to uh, censor American history and promote and demand a very distorted picture of the past. You know, if you don't study the Kennedy assassination, for example, um, and then the way that that playbook was deployed again uh, when they killed King and then when they killed Bobby, and you don't understand how 9-11 functioned as propaganda, if you don't know those things, if you don't know the kinds of head games that the agency played when it mounted its coups in Iran in 1953 and Guatemala in 54 and Chile in 73. You know, if you don't know that whole huge history, then you are very likely to flinch, you know, and roll your eyes when someone says, this happened uh, last week, or this is happening right now. Look what they did there. Mm -hmm. Talk you know, about Ukraine. 
Well, Ukraine, look at Charlottesville, for example. Yeah. You know, there's considerable evidence that both sides in that clash, that culture clash of the Klan versus BLM, you know, they were they were paid. They were acting. That's going to sound completely outrageous to you if you don't know, for example, that communist and anti-communist forces battling in the streets of Tehran during the 53 coup or leading up to it were, were all gangsters being paid by the CIA to play those parts. Mm. It just happened in Brussels on January 23rd, where um, you know the media functioned to upstage the enormous size and total peacefulness of this huge demonstration by Europeans in Brussels. They upstaged that with footage of what looked like street fights between what looked like Antifa and the cops and the military. It was all staged. If you study the footage, you can actually see this one guy actually directing the action. Hmm. You know, uh, this Janet Osebard, who's a Belgian documentarist, made this great video just laying it out. I mean, it should be an indispensable part of every curriculum and and you know, propaganda study, right? It, it, it's obvious what they were doing, right? Well, if you don't know that there's a precedent for this kind of thing and a well-established precedent, then you're going to be less inclined to believe that it's happening now, especially if you don't want to believe that it's happening now. And that's the problem. Right. People don't want to think that this is all true. So when they respond with a snort of disgust and derision, it's not because the claims you're making are so outrageous, right? That is to say, so unimaginable. It's that the idea that that's what they're doing is so scary to them that they 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 simply find grounds for for dismissing it, right? right? And then they will attack you even for mentioning it. And then when you get into the real third rail issues, like you know, Pizzagate and uh, child trafficking. Um, you know, that's where we get into the heart of darkness. Yeah. You know, that's so threatening that you're 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 going to be uh, excommunicated, if not, you know, physically attacked for bringing it up. I mean, I was one of the charges against me by my colleagues was that I had claimed Sandy Hook was a hoax. Well, I didn't claim it was a hoax. I shared on my website an article about how the judge in the trial over the Sandy Hook thing, uh, James Fetzer, mm -hmm. was sued for claiming that it was a hoax and claiming that those children were not killed. In that trial, he had two extremely credentialed handwriting experts, document experts, um, study this one birth certificate of this guy's alleged child. And um, both of them deemed this birth certificate, a forgery, the judge would not allow the jury to hear from those experts. Okay. I shared that article with my readers because I think it's significant, right? I think it's worth knowing that. Right. I wasn't at Sandy Hook that day, so I don't know whether it was a hoax or not. Right. But the very fact that I even credited that much of it, right, that I was even willing, this wasn't even in a classroom, right? This was on my website. The fact that I would even go there was so outrageous to them that, that they included that in, in you know, their list of charges against me, yeah. kind of hate speech or whatever, right? So it's it's this 
terrified refusal to recognize the extent of the lying and its sophistication, to, to recognize just how much control they wield over the primary means through which we know what we know about the world. They don't want to go there, right? They don't study propaganda. They study other things, but they think themselves so intelligent and so well-informed like, on their, you know, based on their reading of the New York Times every day. Right. That they can't be fooled, and they there's nothing they can't they that they don't already know, right? So the fact that my students were being encouraged to basically explore anything uh, really really threatened them, and they yeah. and they took it out on me. I think the thing that you mentioned earlier, and I've had this thought before, but people don't understand. I mean, I, I how have I I've put it in the past the the best piece of propaganda that they 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 that they implemented in the United States was to convince everybody that we have this amazing free press and there's no way anybody could be propagandized here. And that is, I mean, it is so ingrained in almost everybody that you run into that like, oh, there's so many different news sources. There's no way there could be this propaganda machine that's doing this to us. But although you can show them, there's only five major corporations that are controlling 90% of all the news you ingest. They just can't see through it, and uh, and they're so afraid that they've been fooled, and they they don't have that open mind that it takes to really go down these rabbit holes and go, huh? You know, there's there's a lot of different information out there, and I'm not getting it on NPR every day. That's exactly right. Yeah, they they um, they cannot begin to imagine, or they don't want to begin to imagine that they could be misinformed yeah. and they are incredibly misinformed. I mean, I've been privy to some of their email exchanges about COVID, you know, they're all, they're all utterly hysterical over Omicron, you know, and, and, and they're outraged that the university would dare to ask them to go back into the classroom, you know, because they're going to drop dead once that they, I mean, they, they, they just don't know anything. They don't know any of the most basic stuff yeah. because they are steeped in, the output that comes from all their favorite broadcasters and newspapers and so on. Right. And, and let me say, you know, people ask me, how do you recognize propaganda? Well, you recognize it when you are bombarded with the exact same narrative everywhere you turn, every outlet out there is saying the same thing. Right. And it isn't just those outlets. It's also, you know, billboards and, um, you know, speeches and stuff that's put up alongside the highways, you know, wearing is caring, you know, pro-mask propaganda. Yeah. Um, you, you cannot get through an average day as someone inhabiting the world without being hit in the head repeatedly with injunctions to get vaccinated. You know, that, that kind of univocality uh, is a clear sign that you're being um, blitzed, you know, by propaganda because its impulse is to take over. Absolutely, its impulse is to come at you through every conceivable medium, you know, all the time. It does not want an argument. It is the opposite of civil discourse in universities, ideally. Uh, it is the opposite of, of Roman or Greek oratory, you know, which mm -hmm. sought to persuade people uh, uh, in company with others trying to persuade people of different notions, right? So you could hear different arguments presented 
That's not what propaganda wants. Propaganda wants to be the only thing you hear and read and see, and it wants to be the only thing you're capable even of imagining. Right. So, you know, its impulse is itself totalitarian, you know, that that's that the practice is totalitarian. Uh, right. So so um, those who hate you for arguing with it are are totalitarian as well. Yeah. It's, uh, let me just ask you one more question, then I promise I'll let you go. I, I could talk to you for hours. I'm really enjoying this conversation because uh, mm-hmm. just because it, being able to see through all of this, I mean, the first thing that comes to mind is, you know, people like you and I, when you've researched all these different topics in, into such detail uh, and you know all this information, I mean, I just know, you know, an encyclopedia's worth of information that people that just get their news from, you know, NPR or whatever, they have no idea. So even bringing up a conversation about a topic, I never even can get through the door. Like, I mean, I have like, you know, I could talk for hours, like we're doing right now about these topics. And yet it's just amazing. Um, like the whole world that, that people aren't experiencing because they're unwilling and unable as a result of being so propagandized to, to be able to like even acknowledge that this universe exists. And then uh, just to kind of wrap it up, because I think it also ties into this idea of left, right paradigm uh, and just the idea of conspiracy theory in general. I just, I just started a personal a blog and I call I decided to call it the populist papers because I was trying to figure out what to call myself besides uh, a conspiracy theorist. I mean, literally this term is so ubiquitous that I've even, I've had to call myself this for years, even though it's derogatory. Cause it's like, what, how do you define yourself when you think in terms of this different history? And it just occurred to me that so much of this very same perspective that the quote unquote conspiracy theorist has was the, is essentially the same political philosophy as the populist movement from the, the post-civil war era up until about 1910 or so when it was essentially quashed, I think with the, the election of Teddy Roosevelt and that kind of, and then the, the presumption that, um, uh, uh, that the anti-monopoly laws that were passed at that time sort of succeeded, you know, sort of ended the, the capitalists and theoretically the populist one. And then you don't hear anything about it, except you do see these conspiracy theory books being censored starting in the 1920s, really. There is a lineage, uh, none dare call it conspiracy. Maybe G. Edward Griffin's work from the 1970s and 80s that uh, you know certainly aren't being taught in academics at the university level today. I mean, this whole historical perspective is like it's been erased from the face of the earth for the last hundred years. So maybe just the this concept of populism could could be uh, a, a new um, a new term anyway, <laughs> you know, a new way yeah. of thinking about things besides the left and the right and the, the traditional conflict that causes so much divide. <laughs> yeah. 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 Well, I, it's funny. You should mention that. Cause I just, just talking to a friend today about the urgent need for us to come up with a term that we can use to refer <laughs> to who we are. Because I know. You can't say we're on the left anymore because yeah. the left is a nightmare. Um, there's got to be some some term we can use uh, for ourselves and our comrades on the so-called right. You know, the people who believe in freedom, although that word is taken as a right wing buzzword. by the Sure. Left. Yeah, I don't know. But populist is good, you know. 
yeah, it's, it's working for me for now, I guess. I mean, I've got to, I'm, I, you know, just in my personal work, trying to figure out how to kind of unify under a big tent, some kind of, you know, potential movement where everyone can agree, everyone who's aware that they're being propagandized and aware that the propaganda is not telling us the truth and have some awareness of what the truth is. I mean, what I'm seeing so much right now is there's just an amazing amount of infighting. You know, once people kind of wake up from the propaganda, they seem to cling to one rabbit hole or the other. And then there's just all this debating going on. And even you know, people still have the left-right paradigm bias inside of them. So, you know, the libertarians will fight with the progressives, even though both of them, you know, have kind of broken through. So it's uh, difficult to figure out, you know, is there a way forward? Because I think the ultimately the only way through it is the strength in numbers. The upper class knows that we have the numbers. That's why they spend so much money and time on developing all this propaganda. Exactly. Uh, you know, so that's that's why that's why there's this concerted effort to, to depict the truckers as Nazis. Yeah. You know, which is just this reminds me, I, I just did a piece on this uh, called those slandering the truckers as a horde of Nazis are a horde of Nazis. And this is on my Substack which I, I'd kind of like to end by urging mm-hmm. your viewers to subscribe to my Substack. I have a list serve uh, that, you know, where through which I send out uh, all kinds of neglected or distorted news that is news stories that have been distorted by others. Maybe I send out 10 or 12 a day and people can subscribe to that. Um, by going to my website, markcrispinmiller.com, just okay. sign up. But my Substack is for my own writings. Okay, these are the things that I spend a little more time on. And since I can't publish anywhere now, like right. many, many others, right? I've basically been blacklisted long since um, as a conspiracy theorist, and I guess now as a member of the far right, uh, that I, I, Substack is is a dream come true, you know. Yeah, all kinds of great people now writing on Substack, and and um, I hope that people will will tune in to read what I have to say. Is that self titled as well on Substack, Mark Crispin Miller? Yeah, they just do a search on my name and Substack. It, it'll take you. It's called News from Underground. Okay, that's also the name of my listserv, but I used it on Substack as well. Okay, perfect. Yeah, and there's, you know the website too will uh, feature all the stuff I've sent out. Okay. Uh, and let me say one last thing. Since I do send out a lot of stuff, if you don't want your inbox filling up with my individual emails, you can pick the daily digest option. So you'll get one email at the end of the day, which is just a digest of all the things I've sent out. But I'm, I'm you know, that's very, very valuable. Uh, I'm not the only person performs this kind of service, but you've got to get a sense of all that the media is censoring or distorting. So it's now gotten to the point where we're sort of obliged to do this through sort of independent media. Yeah, uh, An email listserv allows me to communicate directly with people. And Substack is comparable, you know, in that you can choose to subscribe to it. And, and you know, so far, it's not been tampered with, though it is increasingly under attack. Um, but as long as there's an internet and paths on the internet 
to communicate with people. I think that it will be impossible for the globalists to prevail. In fact, I think that even apart from that, what they're trying to do is so grandiose. It's so unnatural. It's so destructive. It's so evil to be blonde that it can't really succeed. I think that they will continue to do inordinate damage to us and to the world for some time to come. I think COVID is just the beginning. I think a climate lockdown is in the works, you know, and other means of panicking the people into compliance. But finally, again, what they're doing is simply more than any human entity can do. Not that they're entirely human, but I, 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 I am optimistic, uh, even though what's going on at the moment is, is inexpressibly dark. Right. Well, sounds good. And I'll make sure and uh, point people to the website and to the Substack as well. So uh, hopefully, yeah, I'll do what I can. Um, and I just uh, want to definitely say thank you for the conversation. I know I held you a little bit long, but again, I could have talked to you for hours. I really enjoyed it. Um, and I really appreciate your work, especially in, in that world of academia to stand up for the rights of all other academicians everywhere to be able to have their own point of view and actually express them to their class because, right. you know, clearly once that falls apart, then, uh, then the, the world is in a bad place. So again, thanks for, for what you've done and for exposing all the propaganda that's going on and for helping people figure out how to wade their way through it. Um, and I will just finish up with letting people know that they've been listening to The Shift and I'm your host, Doug McKenty. You can find all of my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com. I'm also on Substack now at The Populist Papers. Uh, you can check that out. I'm getting into conversations, um, writing conversations about this, the propaganda, uh, how to use critical thinking skills, applying it to uh, current events. Um and just trying to figure out a way forward, maybe that can be more unifying, get outside of this left-right paradigm. Um, so you guys can check out the work there. I'm also uh, on Facebook, Doug McKinty, my personal page or the shift with Doug McKinty is currently the best place to get in touch. Although I'm always looking for other places and at D McKinty on Twitter. So thanks again, Dr. Miller for coming on. Really had a great time. Same here. Thank you very much. Let's do it again. Okay. Sounds good. Sounds like a plan. Okay. See you. All right, ladies and gentlemen, and there you have it. Uh, that was my conversation with Dr. Mark Crispin Miller. Been wanting to put that together actually for a long time. I think I've had his book for five years or so, but uh, in the last two years, uh, he's really come to the forefront because he's done um, well. He just ended up getting in so much hot water at New York University just for trying to explain to his students uh, what propaganda was how it works, uh, and how to watch out for it in the uh, dominant narrative in the U.S. media. And it's so interesting. I mean, we had we talked a little bit about the fact that propaganda is actually an Anglo-American invention and that it has spread. It spread to places like Nazi Germany uh, or communist Russia. And it's just fascinating because I think the propaganda here is so good that people don't realize that they are being propagandized. I mean, in those countries, certainly in the Soviet Union, I think everybody knew that Pravda really didn't mean truth. Uh, it really wasn't giving the truth. And yet people in this country, they'll listen to NPR or CNN or Fox News or N MSNBC, and they'll just believe 
that the narrative that they're hearing is uh, has been created by hardworking journalists doing investigative journalism, uh, discovering the, the dirty truths and then reporting the facts. And I think the truth is, and, and uh, Dr. Miller can certainly back this up, that that is very, very rarely the case, that more often than not, uh, what we're experiencing is very sophisticated propaganda here in the United States. And it's more important than ever, I think, that people really wake up to this. And so Dr. Miller's teaching this class, uh, and he's trying to uh, help his students hone their critical thinking skills. He's saying, listen to what you're hearing on the news. Let's compare it to uh, the scientific evidence, the peer-reviewed papers. And let's uh, decide for ourselves what we really think about what's going on with this COVID pandemic. And for that, he just started getting hammered. He'd already been pushed outside the establishment. And this is really, his story is so fascinating to me because it's very representative of what's happened to the political left. And I'll be the first to tell you that during the uh, Iraq war, me and Everybody else who thinks like me, we were accused of being far leftists who were against the war because we knew that that war was being pushed through propaganda and trying to explain pe to people on the right, you know, this is not, these are not factual. This uh, line of argumentation doesn't make a lot of sense. Uh, what's going on here? Then you get accused of being left wing. And now, of course, these days, uh, if you go against the dominant co uh, COVID narrative, you're accused of being far right, domestic terrorist, fascist, you know? <laughs> and this is uh, the situation that Dr. Miller finds himself in, where the left has just. I mean, I, you know, I would say it, it's going off the rails. In my interview with Todd Ring a few, a few weeks back, maybe six weeks ago now, as a left libertarian, he identifies as left. Uh, and we're just finding more and more that the average progressive now who's really heavily influenced by uh, media sources like NPR uh, have been so influenced by the dominant narrative that they now think that people who believe in individual rights are uh, far right, uh, you know, scary, scary people that are that are pushing for some kind of uh, dark agenda, white supremacist, you know, <laughs> colonizers, uh, and it's simply not true. But it's infested the American Academy, and Dr. Miller's situation really typifies what's going on there. And I think we all really need to be concerned. That was why I was so happy to get him on the show to really show people what's happening in that a lot of these liberal uh, academic professors who historically have valued uh, individual rights uh, and have championed uh, liberal causes for the good of humanity uh, seem to have made this very dangerous twist, this dangerous change into this world where if you're not following the government's bottom line and you don't believe in the dominant narrative, uh, then you're automatically pigeonholed into this conspiracy theory place. And, and that's uh, where Dr. Miller finds himself. He uh, observe the 2004 election, and if you all are old enough, I mean, I told him in the interview, I actually voted for Kerry in that election. I don't even usually vote, but the, the Iraq war thing was so terrible, and the neocons and Dick Cheney and George Bush were moving the country in such a terrible direction, I just, you know, threw out a protest vote for Kerry, thought, my God, uh, and and the feeling around the country was all the same. It it just seemed like Kerry was going to win it, uh, no brainer. And then all of a sudden, nope, didn't happen. Uh, I at the time, Dr. Miller, we start people start looking into these electronic voting machines. What's going on? And he really thought that uh, when the book came out, 
uh, and he was going to expose a lot of these shenanigans, that there was going to be a powerful election reform uh, movement that started to happen. And instead, he's faced with uh, all of these accusations about being conspiracy theorists. And of course, then he goes down the rabbit hole and uh, starts to really distrust almost everything coming out of corporate and government media. Uh, and the next thing you know, uh, the the liberal establishment is at his institutions, uh, as he said, he's been basically blacklisted at this point. Uh, and when he started to just simply raise some questions about the dominant COVID narrative, uh, that really just uh, the whole institution at New York University basically has risen up against him. And this uh, this situation really marks a very dangerous turn in terms of academic freedom. I mean, the whole theory behind university learning is that once you get your PhD, once you get tenure at a university, then you really have uh, a safe place to express alternative opinions uh, without uh, being threatened with losing your job without being threatened to, uh, you know, being exposed to all of these kinds of subtle, passive-aggressive threats. Uh, and Dr. Miller has had to endure all of these things uh, to the point where he uh, has gone through with this defamation lawsuit. Uh, and he's really trying to push back. And I hope that uh, for those of you who are listening, pay attention to where that goes, because where it goes is going to determine the course of academic freedom in the United States, probably for a long time to come. And I think we're in for a pretty... Um, a pretty remarkable decade here. Either, you know, the side of freedom is going to win out, people are going to wake up, or things are really going to shut down. And we're going to see a tremendous amount of authoritarianism here in the United States, including uh, at these academic universities, which, to my mind, are already starting to radicalize a lot of students into these far-left ways of thinking uh, that are becoming a, a neo-fascism. Uh, I mean, I... Once you ditch the idea that, that there's any boundary between government power, government corporate power, and individual choice when it comes to things like these mandates, the vaccine mandates, certainly uh, you're, you're crossing a line. And I've seen so many of my uh, progressive identifying friends really just go there. So uh, this conversation with Mark Crispin Miller is an important one, not just to wake up people to the propaganda itself, which may be the number one issue that we're dealing with. I mean, people are just sucked into it and they don't believe you when you're like, look at all this peer-reviewed science that says something else, something different than the picture that you're getting painted by Dr. Fauci on the TV. Um, and they won't see it. It's such a powerful psychological force. And somehow I think uh, for those of us who are aware of what's going on, we need to figure out, you know, how do we wake people out of this kind of hypnosis? Um, one of the things that we talked about I thought was really interesting was this idea of the inversion of language. I mean, even the term liberal or the term progressive, which I've started to come out and say, look, this progressive movement is has always been funded by the upper class. It's just a ruse to centralize the means of production, to monopolize markets through socialized medicine, uh, through public education systems that then give uh, these big corporations uh, captive markets, monopolized markets, to be able to sell uh, not only their, their goods and services to, but the ideas that we get now are completely controlled from above, this top-down system. So, uh, and the inversion of language is confusing a lot of people. They really think that they're following 
the good, what's good for the people, what's good for the community. And they're not, they have never been taught or explained the principles of individual rights, of the necessity to set boundaries against what these corporate institutions can do. So uh, I hope that you gained as much from this conversation as I did. It was a, uh, a, a really, it was well worth the wait. I tried to put it together a couple different times, as you may know. Uh, Dr. Miller said he suffers from chronic Lyme, so uh, we had a few attempts that didn't work out, but it was well worth the wait, one of the better conversations I've had in a long time. Um, so just to remind you all, if you want to find out more about his work, you can go to www.markcrispinmiller.com. Uh, and you can sign up for the newsletter there, or he was really excited about having the new Substack. I think a lot of us are, actually, at least one outlet where we can get our writings out without being overly concerned about the, the censorship that's becoming more and more prominent. Uh, and that's news from underground on Substack. You can catch his stuff there. All right, thanks everybody for checking this one out, and uh, I will let you know my next interview is going to be, uh, I called it the Old Fashioned Federal Reserve interview, uh, and this is uh, with a documentary filmmaker, Jimmy Morrison, who produced an interview about the big housing bubble and the crash of 2008. He's about to come out with another one, the bigger housing bubble. Uh, and we're going to talk about monetary inflation and how devastating it's been um, for all of us for now uh, over a hundred years. So that'll be a great one as well. Hope you catch that. Uh, and of course, you can find my stuff at www.theshiftnow.com and my new blog uh, where I'm getting more and more of my own ideas out, trying to figure out you know, how to message things so that we can wake more people up out of the, out of the hypnosis caused by the propaganda, start to have real conversations, trying to break down the left-right paradigm, which Dr. Miller and I also talked about, so that we can unify. I mentioned the idea of, of calling it the old-fashioned populist movement, trying to figure out a, a different name uh, so we don't have to just keep referring to ourselves as uh, conspiracy theorists. And I do think that there's a direct correlation and a lineage going back to the activists in the late 19th century as part of the populist movement when people were trying to rise up against the robber barons were, guess what, still in the same situation. Uh, nothing has changed, so uh, maybe we can call it that. And that's why I called my substack The Populist Papers. You can find my writings there. Hope you check it out, and uh, we'll catch you again next week. Thanks for listening. Take care, everybody. Mm -hmm.